Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, and joining us shortly, Lou, is going to be Dr. Chris Keel, who has so many titles I've lost track. I hope he's got a whole new group of jokes to tell us about the economy. Well, of course, yeah. of course. <laughs> and there he is. I, 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 there you go. I mean, I, I, the shortest one is, do you know how to tell the difference between an extroverted economist and an introverted economist? The Pretty extrovert tough. looks at your shoes. So okay, you that was that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he looks at your shoes. All right, we'll, yeah, we'll have to yeah. talk about that off air. There must be something hidden in that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, just to catch just to catch our listeners up, uh, Chris Keel is coming to us live from the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International Annual Meeting. And you're in what city this moment, Chris? I am in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where they're having their meeting. So. Well, that's a good place to be, uh, catch a little country it music. Uh, tell is. us all about the Credit Managers Index, which, uh, you know, normally you're Dr. Doom and Gloom. I think we're just going to have you as Dr. Gloom because Dr. Doom is already a Marvel <laughs> comic character. That's true. That's but true. They've, stole, they've stolen your thunder. The report looks good. Yes, it does. And it's kind of interesting because it's a bit of a – bit of a difference from the PMI. The PMI, of course, on the manufacturing side didn't look that good. On the service side, it did. And we saw a little bit of that with the CMI. What was really standing out this month is that you had a rebound in the favorable factors, which is always good news. These are things like sales and applications for credit and dollar collections and amount of credit extended, those all sort of rose, a couple of them back into the 60s. And you also had some pretty solid recovery in what we call the unfavorables, which are things like slow pays and accounts for collection and bankruptcies and disputes. Some of those are still in the contraction zone. They're still under 50, but they're closer to expansion than they have been. I think what we also saw, similar to what was happening with the PMI, is that the numbers were a little bit stronger on the service side than they were on the manufacturing side. And no real shock, um, given this point in the year, um, the service sector in the U.S. economy is always major. uh, Two-thirds of all consumer spending is on services. So if the consumer is active, then the service sector generally responds. What we were seeing were good numbers in healthcare, good numbers in even retail, um, and that was a little bit of a surprise. Retail usually tanks at the beginning of the year. This year, not quite as dramatically as it has in past years. So everybody has confidence in their credit card that they'll be able to pay for goods and services in about 90 days. That's pretty much it. And what we've seen a lot with consumer confidence is that it's highly correlated to employment. If people feel confident in their job, if they don't see a lot of layoffs, if they're basically secure, 
they feel vindicated and they can go ahead and spend, they can run their credit cards up because we have seen credit card debt increase. Um, corporate debt has certainly increased. Um, we've gone about 2008. The corporate debt was around $2 trillion. It's now almost 6 and enough that you're getting a little bit of worry from some of the FM or the, from the Federal Reserve chiefs, particularly the one from Dallas. Uh, Kaplan has commented on this, saying this could be a problem if interest rates begin to rise any more significantly than they have. Yes, no doubt. Um, you're right. And matter of fact, there has been some talk about the amount of junk bond debt that's hanging right. out there. And could that be the next bubble? So question for you, Chris, if interest rates do go up, will it be fast enough, dramatic enough for junk bond debt to actually be a crisis or not? I don't think it's going to be a bubble type crisis, but I think what you will see is a lot of companies and investors that went the junk bond route kind of divesting of those as quickly as they can, which will put a little bit of a damper on expansion plans for, for companies that are not maybe as well healed as the Fortune 500. I mean, we use the term junk bonds kind of indiscriminately, and what it really boils down to is these are companies that are selling their bonds, they don't really have a track record, they don't really have a, a AAA-rated bond. They're maybe very legitimate companies, but they're young or you know they've been through a bad patch. Many of them succeed, and, and it's a worthwhile investment, but you're always taking a little bit of a risk because, again, it's a young company, it may not make it. When you start to see those junk bonds becoming less popular, it means that those startup companies have a lot less to work with. You know, they're going to have to go the borrowing route or they're going to have to find venture capitalists who are sometimes referred to as vulture capitalists for sort of obvious reasons. <laughs> so. Right. right. I'm sorry. I should have called them high yield bonds. It's just yes, what Wall exactly. Street calls them. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, I know can, that Lou is burning. I, I know Lou is burning to ask you about uh, President Tariff. Right. You mean you mean <laughs> Tariff Man? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's self-proclaimed. That's not my name. For that's him. right. That's right. I think that's a new Marvel comic coming out. And not just it, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we're so now it's, what we we're, yeah we've seen that that this hasn't worked. No one really expected it to work because, frankly, tariffs are are kind of dimly understood. One of the con conversations here, if people are not familiar with the FMA, it has two kind of members. It has the fabricators, and you have the steel providers. So at some point in the meeting there's sort of an opportunity for both sides of the equation. There was a panel discussion this morning where you had steel users and steel producers, and they're all talking about the tariffs. And the one thing they agreed on is that people don't understand tariffs. Um, it's a tax, and there are still many, many people who somehow think that we're taxing China, that the tariff is taking money out of China. Really, the only thing a tariff does is change the competitive position of a product. If you impose a tariff on steel from China or from anywhere else, steel from a country that isn't being hit with a tariff becomes cheaper 
the idea is if you're going to try to discriminate against foreign steel and have people buy it in the U.S. That only works if there's a legitimate opportunity to switch. So if you have been buying a steel product that came from China or came from Canada or came from Mexico, and there's a U.S. producer that you can switch to, then the tariff might have an impact. But frequently, that's not the case. The steel that you want to buy is only available from Canada or Mexico or Turkey or whatever. So you end up just paying the tariff. You know, it becomes a tax on the person who's doing the purchase. Well, the other the other issue with that, Chris, is that uh, on this particular go around on the tariffs, the U.S. steel producers raise their price between thirty-five right. and forty percent, and uh, you know, just passed on to the uh, consumer, you and I, and uh, they've now lowered their prices. But I think that's because uh, there was some uh, glut in the uh, in the uh, in the marketplace, but right. there was no there was no real benefit to anybody. No, I mean it's, it's a very common response because companies basically take advantage of the changed circumstances to say, well, you know, I'm going to still be cheaper than the competitive product even if I raise my prices because right. of the tariff that's been imposed. The bigger issue of tariffs, which is what was really in the trade data uh, today, had to do with the more all-encompassing restrictions on product coming in from China. And the reason that this really didn't work is kind of, of logical. I mean, if you're a company and you know that the product that you're buying is going to get more expensive later, that there's going to be a tariff, you buy as much as you possibly can of it now to beat that price increase. And if you look at the shipping situation right now, I mean, there are literally thousands of container ships that are just drifting offshore on the West Coast because there's no place to unload. So much stuff has been purchased in anticipation of those price increases that there's no place to put it. The concern going forward is that, okay, if you now have all this stuff in your inventory, can you actually sell it? And a lot of companies are going to turn back in six months and go, why exactly did we buy 500,000 of these? It's like, well, Mm -hmm. you were afraid you weren't going to be able to get them later. I know, but we haven't sold 500,000 of these in the last 20 years. You know, so... It's it's a it's kind of a gamble, and if you do get a trade deal, then it's all sort of a wash because then it's like, oh, I guess we didn't have to do that after all. So the the trade data basically showed that that wasn't really something that was going to stimulate a reduction in the deficit. The only thing that really does that consistently is for other countries to buy more of what we produce. And mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things where the export numbers went up a little bit, but not by much. And frankly, the export numbers have been inflated or the challenge has been inflated because of the strength of the dollar. The main reason the companies are not selling more aggressively internationally is that the dollar has made U.S. products more expensive. And as long as we have interest rates going up in the U.S. and they're not going up anywhere else, then 
you have a, a stronger currency. And the other data that came out today, the European Eurozone is growing at maybe 1%. Um, Germany is growing at 0.07. So there's not going to be a lot of, of demand for the European Central Bank to raise their rates. Um, Bank of England's not going to raise their rates. We're sort of the only game in town when it comes to raising rates. Well, there's two points I'd like to bring out, and one of them is uh, how long can our economy be as strong as it is, uh, considering that the, our foreign partners are not doing well, and how long right. will that uh, take before it affects us? And the other part is that uh, about those thousands of ships offshore, in off shore, off of uh, Long Beach, California, they don't have any trucks to take them away from the port. Right, exactly. I, I mean, it's a so, transportation bottleneck all the way through. Yeah. And so, and, yeah, you're uh, absolutely right. I mean, the the challenge for the U.S. is that we are still predominantly driven by our own consumers, and so we can grow at a certain pace. But I think we're seeing it already. I mean, we were growing around 3% a quarter for, you know, a good year, year and a half. And now in the fourth quarter of last year, we fell to 2.6. The predictions are that we'll be around 2.3 in 2019, probably 2% 2020. And that's entirely due to the fact that the rest of the world is not doing well. So China's down, Europe's down, Japan's down. Those are significant markets for the U.S. I mean, 15% of our GDP is export. That's not a huge percentage, but it's comparable to Japan. They're about 14%. So if you lose that export market, then it just slows your economy. It doesn't crush it. It's not sending us into recession all by itself, but it puts a tremendous burden really on just the U.S. consumer. And that's a vulnerability that can be tolerated for a while. But then if the consumer gets squirrely and begins to worry about jobs or starts to retrench or whatever, then you get a a more significant slowdown. I think that we will kind of revert back to norm this year. We'll be growing about where we have for the last 20 years and not bad, not outstanding. It's just 2.3 is adequate. It's not going to get anybody excited, but it's also not recessionary. What happened to the 4% and the 5% that uh, Washington's been talking about? Yeah, that was fantasy. Um, The last time we grew (laughs) at a rate that fast, Grover Cleveland was in office. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so I don't think we're going to go back to the late 1800s. And when those comments are being made, the economists of the world are like, what in the hell are you talking about? There is no way we grow that fast. I mean, we just can't. I mean, we're not we're not a developing country. We're not a country that's going to be doing what what China and India can do. We're we're looking at for us 3.5% growth is really really good and it's keeping anywhere between 2.5 and 3.5 is tolerable. You fall below 2.5, you're beginning to see some strains. Um, The good news, of course, is that we're not looking at the European sclerotic growth rate. Uh, So that would be a cause of great concern. But 
at this point, we're not. But it doesn't help us that some of our major buyers, like the Germans and the British and the Japanese and the Chinese, are not doing very well because they won't be buying that much from us. No doubt. Uh, so, Chris, is this $600 billion trade gap, and we've talked about this on the show before, um, just an interesting number, but really not very meaningful because it's never going to narrow to zero? No, it's never going to be zero. We're always going to be a country that imports a lot because it's simply more efficient. And we're a country, again, that orients towards its consumers. So in order for us to have this vibrant consumer economy that accounts for 80% of our GDP, you have to give the consumer a lot of things to buy. If we made all of those things domestically, it would create a real strain on most people's budgets. It would be probably an additional six to $8,000 a year. So being able to buy things from other parts of the world at a less expensive price maintains our consumer lifestyle. So we'll never get it to zero, wouldn't want it to be at zero. Our biggest concern is, is not even the deficit per se, it's our exports. You know, what we want to be able to do is export successfully, aggressively, get into new markets, um, particularly with the manufacturing sector in the U.S., because that's mostly what we export is food and manufacturing. We don't export consumer goods. We don't export the kind of things that China does. We export sophisticated machinery. Well, they have to right. bring back... They have to bring back the export incentives uh, like right. they had in the 80s, uh, which was uh, incredible. And uh, uh, that's what they need to do is to be promoting exports. And the U.S. Department they of did. Commerce did a great job. They did. And, 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 didn't, and, and, and didn't, Chris, they just try this with a new bill going through the House to encourage exports, which may not help at all? Yeah, I mean, they have... In the past, they have done a number of things to try to promote exports. They've tried to give people tax breaks. They've tried to really just research and develop money, all kinds of stuff. What it really comes down to is, is boots on the ground. If you look at Japan or the Europeans, those that are very dependent on exports, their offices are tremendously active in trying to develop relationships for their companies back home. We used to do that. There used to be trade people in almost every embassy, almost every consular office. Over the years, those have been cut. And as a result, you don't really have kind of a U.S. economic cheerleader in these various countries saying, hey, buy from us, buy from us, buy from us. We really need to get our, our politicians and our government focused on on that kind of thing. I remember a few years back, Angela Merkel from Germany landed in Indonesia, and they had been asking for German support money, and that's why she was there. They came to pick her up in a Lexus, and she looked at it from the airplane, and she turned to her counterpart in Indonesia and said, I'm not getting off the plane until you get a Mercedes out here. You are not <laughs> going to bring me to your country to beg me for money and then pick me up in a damn Japanese car. And, 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 and so we need some politicians that play that role too, saying if you want our money, 
Oh, I sure as hell better see an American product, and you sure as hell better be meeting with these American businessmen that I brought with me. Yes, no doubt the Department of Commerce used to do a great job in this area. Oh, very and, good. Right. Their foreign and commercial service thing was great. Uh, we yeah. did uh, we did several uh, trade shows in uh, England and France, the uh, aerospace shows, and uh, we went through the U.S. Department of Commerce, and they were great. I mean, they they set us up. They 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 were falling all over themselves to figure out how they could help us, and it was right. just great events. Uh, now we have uh, Wilbur Ross. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and. You also have the fact that back when the U.S. was functioning a little bit more aggressively, a lot of states had their offices uh, very active. You know, I'm from Kansas. Kansas had an office. Missouri had an office. And I remember being in Taiwan, going to their big World Trade Center. There was a huge office from the state of Missouri that was talking to everybody that came to every show saying, hey, did you know that Missouri is this, Missouri is that? And, and you could tell by the looks on people's faces, they had no idea. They had no idea right. if Missouri was a manufacturing state or that it had all these things. So you really need an educational um, focus, and, and it doesn't always result in an immediate sale, but it's kind of one of these slow builds, you know, where, where companies and individuals slowly start to learn what it is that the U.S. can do, because... The companies themselves, you know, they've got a lot on their plate already, you know, and then also trying to promote internationally can be just a burden too much. But, you know, Chris, they, like I said, they did have it in the in the early 80s, uh, and mm-hmm. then they, they, real, they realized that they were giving away too much to the manufacturers and exporters, so they changed it to, I forgot the two names, uh, uh, of the two programs, they changed it to mm-hmm. the, the second one, which gave away a little less or gave back a little less. But the point is that they they had them, they worked, people were making a lot of money, our exports were really high, and then it went away. Right. I'm not even sure which president was it who made it go away. Um, I mean, it was it was kind of a, a combination of Democrat and Republican because there was a there was a criticism from the left that this was somehow corporate socialism. There was a criticism right. from the right that it was somehow wasting money and the government shouldn't be involved in this. And between the two of them, they sort of yanked the rug out from these, those, those areas. You know, it struck some people as setting industrial policy and to a degree that probably was, but mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. you really have to promote your your country in this day and age. There's too much competition not to. And and when it comes right down to bang for the buck, I mean, that kind of promotion yields a lot more than a lot of the other things that we do to theoretically help business succeed. And I don't know why it went away. It really shouldn't have. Um, I think it was kind of a, a narrow choice based on the times that probably should be resurrected as quickly as possible. <laughs> so. Right, right. And, and isn't this exactly where the Export-Import Bank finds itself today, Chris? Uh, you know, right, not, exactly. They don't have a quorum, but they can't do the big transactions, and we're losing business. 
Exactly. I was going to bring that up next because here you have what is, by almost all accounts, a perfect way to promote U.S. production. You have the Exxon Bank, which basically loans money to countries that they then turn around and spend in the United States. So you're not really loaning money to the country as much as you're loaning it to American producers. And what it allows companies to do is that they have some enormous order from a government or some business. You know, they can't pull together that money themselves. But if they can get it from the Exxon Bank, then you have a whole transaction which takes place that would not normally have taken place. The Exxon Bank is probably the most efficient export promotion tool that we've ever had. And and better yet, it's completely legal under the terms of the World Trade Organization. A lot of companies and countries do outright subsidies. They do things that violate the WTO. This is in complete compliance with the WTO and actually works better than half the subsidy approaches. Well, that's... Uh... Uh, it's kind of how we felt about it. Lou and I have followed the XM Bank situation for quite some time, and we've had right. on some senators and congressmen to talk about it, and it still seems to be stuck. Uh, it's interesting that the government seems to take those departments that make money and neutralize them <laughs> and end up with those departments that burn money at a quick right. rate uh, that they rely on. <laughs> this is not a great problem. Maybe and- Go ahead. It's it's often a, a situation where you sort of have the squeaky wheel. I mean, you get people who criticize something like the Exxon Bank, often from an ideological perspective. The supporters are kind of diffuse. I mean, it's companies that have been using this technique for years, but they don't really rally in, in D.C. To, to say something. And I think part of the problem is that you just you have a lot of tails wagging dogs where you're listening to a a group that really is not representative of the U.S., not representative of the business community, and they need to sort of be told to sit down and shut up. It's like, you know, fine, if you think this is corporate welfare, go ahead and start a blog. But it's not corporate welfare. It is promoting what your country does, promoting job growth, promoting increased tax revenue, there's no losers in any of this stuff. And as a result, it's just, it's, it's foolish to be finding yourself in opposition to something. It's, it's just, there are lots of things that legitimately need opposition. This isn't one of them. <laughs> well, when they, when they had the first um, uh, export incentive and uh, I think it was, I think it was called FIRA. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not clear on it. There, the government really wasn't advertising it. There were only 1,000 right. companies in the United States that were a member of this effort. Mm-hmm. And and it had a huge, huge effect on export. But they stopped promoting it, and, you know, it just died a, it died a miserable death. And that's often what happens. If you look at some of these programs, even the ones that are run by the states, they'll have all kinds of things to help people go to trade shows and you know, they'll have money set aside, and at the very end, they're they're begging people to apply because no one's ever heard of it. And right. and then the companies that do go come away saying, well, I got like 25 orders from this show. 
And it's like, mm-hmm. well, of course you did. And, but she never even knew it was there. So it's, we, we, there's a bias with most American companies that they just do business domestically anyway, because it's easy and we're a big economy. You've got to be a little bit encouraging to get people to take that leap to get into the complexity of international. And when you then don't offer them any help, then they look at it and say, it's, it's too much trouble. But if you yep. are giving them assistance, then they can navigate it. Well, in actuality, Chris, uh, exporting today versus exporting in the 80s is vastly different. It's not, oh, it's, not, uh, it's not the, the old uh, letters of credit and dealing right. with the banks and getting screwed by the banks because they charge you for every misplaced mm-hmm. dot or period. Uh, it's, it's way different today. And much easier. And there's mechanisms. You know, I work a lot, obviously, with the credit managers. That's where the same light comes from. And you start to talk about what's just changed within credit management, trade insurance, mm-hmm. and all the sorts of things that that come out of the credit function, which make doing international. Because that was always the challenge: is well, I could pay it. And there are so many tools and provisions now within the credit business that doing business in even very kind of remote countries is is doable you know that you have mechanisms in place that allow you to do business with paraguay and botswana and burma for god's sakes i mean you don't have to relegate yourself to a sophisticated country anymore well taking this taking that point one step further uh, back in the day, uh, letters of credit were the only way you could go. And, of course, mm-hmm. it has all kinds of complexities. Uh, I haven't done – we do a fair amount of export in all metals and forge. And uh, I haven't taken a letter of credit in probably 20 years. And it's oh, all yeah. cash up front, and nobody complains. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so and, that in itself – yeah. And you're now at a position where because of the information that's available and the credit information that's available, you can treat an international customer much as you would a domestic customer. You can offer them terms. You can you can do the same sort of thing that you do with, with your normal run-of-the-mill clients because the, the system is in place to support it. So at the right. very moment that exporting is at its peak in terms of ease and simplicity, we're seeing a struggle to see more export expansion. And I think it is partly kind of getting across to the powers that be that this is the solution to our deficit, not restricting product that comes in, but getting a lot better at sending what we make out. And, you know, we're one of the most productive countries in the world per worker you know, we have product that is unequaled. We have product that nobody else makes. We should be just, you know, taking names and kicking down doors when it comes to exporting. But we keep getting in our own way. This is true. This is true. And it's certainly maybe the easiest way to improve your uh, sales revenues in, in a domestic company. Oh, yeah, very definitely. And it gives you some protection. That's always been the advantage of doing truly global business is that it's rare that every economy in the world is in decline. 
So even if you're facing a problem in one country, well, you can shift your attention to another and Correct. make money there. So, Correct. I mean, it's, Correct. it's the diversification strategy. So the point of all of this, listeners, is look to go export. It's the easiest. That's right. You want to you want to increase your revenue twenty twenty five percent this year? Go export. Yep. It's the easiest way and to do start, it. Exactly. And you look at countries that are in a growth mode. I mean, right now one of the hot markets in the world is India. They're growing at about seven point five percent, and it's a a country that is oriented towards business. It's friendly with the United States. Uh, the majority of the population speaks English. You know, so there's not a lot of inhibitions to doing business in India. It's very bureaucratic. It can be very frustrating to get through some of the rules and regs. But that's where our government comes in to sort of help or should be helping people navigate some of that. Yes, they just speak the king's English very, very fast. <laughs> yes, they do. They do, you know with a little bit of a Gujarati accent, but you get used to it after a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, again, we appreciate your insights. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up this segment with you? Nope, I think we're good. Um, I think we're in a pretty healthy place. 2019 is not going to be quite as robust as 2018, but I don't think we're looking at a really a downturn. We're just sort of easing back into the pace that we've been experiencing for the last 20 years. So no no real alarm bells either way. Oh, that's good news. Again, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. You guys have a thanks. good day. Yeah, you too, Chris. Enjoy the show. So, Lou, that's uh, once again another uh, fairly encouraging report. We had a good one with Tim Fiore. We had the one with Anthony Nieves. His numbers for, for non-manufacturers are just breaking records. And then we've got this very favorable outlook from Chris. So a year to, to work on expansion. Well, uh, as uh, we've all experienced the January, February uh, period, or particularly January, wasn't uh, particularly robust, even though the numbers didn't crunch uh, downwards, but it wasn't wonderful. Uh, but the last uh, two weeks or so, and I know two weeks doesn't make a year, but at All Metals and Forge, uh, things have uh, picked up uh, immeasurably, and we're not hearing uh, the same comments we were a week or two ago about, uh, well, management's holding off, we're not pulling the trigger, we're not giving out the POs. Uh, we're hearing different things this last two weeks, and it's very encouraging. And that's excellent. Uh, as all of our listeners may know, All Metals and Forge Group, which you can find at steelforge.com, is the sponsor of the show. And all of our uh, manufacturing talk radio shows are housed at mfgtalkradio.com, so you can listen to any of the shows that we've put on over 300 or you can click over and pick up the Women in Manufacturing show, which is we affectionately call WAM or womenandmfg.com. Back on the mfgtalkradio.com site, you'll find Manufacturing Matters with Chris Waldman. He is a noted economist. He used to be the chief economist with the Manufacturers and Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. So lots of great content from lots of intelligent, well-informed people. We encourage everyone to Surf around the site, take a listen, read our news articles, check out our metals and manufacturing outlook e-zine that comes out every month, 
and subscribe to that. And we appreciate you listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.